Hallelujah. Blessed be the Lord God Almighty, Amen. who was and who is and who is to come. We bless your name, Lord. Family, good morning. It is um, a wise man once said, if you've gotten more than five hours sleep, please say amen. Give <laughs> <laughs> an amen. So, <laughs> what a wonderful time we had yesterday with the men. Um, it felt so weird not having any estrogen in the room. Uh, it was like such a weird experience, but it was really such a blessed time. And uh, I may or may not have uh, thrashed our pastor at FIFA. Um, <laughs> just say someone owes me a cup of tea, but you know, I'm preaching on humility, so let me, let me leave it there. So. <laughs> Lord, forgive me. Uh, family, this morning, um, we are in the book of John still. So as we are venturing through the book of John, the pastor gave me the assignments of uh, preaching through the book of John. And uh, as you guys know, we are on this journey of expository preaching. And expository is being chained to the scripture, not moving and veering out of it, staying true and faithful to the scripture. What is the scripture saying? Yeah. And one thing I've learned from expository preaching is that I always felt inadequate because I couldn't preach like T.D. Jakes and, you know, call fire from heaven. And I always wanted to have that because that is what a preacher does. But what expository preaching does is frees you from the ego. And we are stuck in the scripture. And what does the scripture say? It's not about me. Yes. It's about him. And it's about what God is trying to say. So I thank God for giving me that revelation. And we are in the book of uh, John. So the hardest parts of preaching an entire book or expositing, I preached in the book of Jude, which was a lot easier because there's one chapter in Jude. It makes it much easier to break down the scripture and to talk us through verse by verse. But when you're looking at the book of John, you've got 20 something chapters and you have to pick a struggle, as my sister likes to say. And picking that struggle was quite difficult. So as we just recap last week, uh, what we had gone through last week. Well, last week, we had looked at the book of John in parallel to the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All seem to be singing from the same hymn sheets, and then you have uh, the Apostle John, who seems to be on a different planet, um, talking about the same things, but from a totally different angle. And we see that John starts the book um, echoing the Old Testament in the beginning we have in Genesis. John then goes and says, in the beginning also. In the beginning was uh, God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis. John goes and echoes that and he says, in the beginning was the word. And what God is teaching us, uh, what John is teaching us is that God was uh, teaching us three things. That God was pre-existence. God existed before time. It speaks to his pre-existence, speaks to his eternality. Before anything was created, there was Christ. John also teaches us that God is coexistent. God, Jesus, was God. Jesus was equal to God. He's not separate. He's not another God. He's not an addition. He's not a co-pilot, but he is coexistent with God. He is God. Jesus says that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father because I represent everything that the Father is. And uh, the third um, lesson that we had learned was that Jesus was self-existent. He is the I am. I am who I am. I am the essence. So we also learned that um, Jesus was the life and he was the light. I gave the illustration that darkness was, was uh, preeminent in the world. And when God brought his light into the world, the darkness could not overcome it. It could not understand it. It could not win against it. It is like when you take a match in a dark room, that small light will illuminate that entire room. And that is what Christ done. And he's been taking ground back ever since. And this is the Christ that we serve. And I wanted to set a foundation for Jesus last week to say that he is all. 
Scripture speaks about it, says that He is the Alpha, the beginning. He is the Omega. He is the end. He is the first and He is the last. He is the author and is the finisher of our faith. He is the one who was and who is and who is to come. He is the unchanging one. He is the one from eternity past who came into eternity. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And this is the great revelation that God gives us and that John explains in the prologue to the book of John. In the beginning was a word. And that word is translated in Greek into the word logos. And logos, as we discussed last week, was the creative force as the Greek swords. It was the thing that the Greeks thought that created this impersonal force that created the universe. And what John is doing is intelligently borrowing from culture and saying that in the beginning was a logos. And this creative force is not impersonal, but it's personal. It is a human being, it is Emmanuel, it is God come down manifested in flesh. And this is what God, oh, what John, the Apostle John, is trying to explain to us here. And it is such a fantastic and mind-blowing, and I use the term that John has a great economy of words. He uses four letters or four words to explain great truth. In the beginning, God created and he was, uh, he was made flesh and manifested in flesh. So that is what we, we had covered last week. And uh, as we go through this week, I had to pick a struggle, and my struggle is, takes us to the third chapter of the book of John. So if we can stay in the third chapter, and we will know some very famous scripture from the third chapter of John, which is chapter 16, when he's talking to Nicodemus. So all of us know this, we can quote this off by heart, but what I want to do is take us a little further, and I want to do a character study today on another John. If you see in the beginning, in the beginning was a word, and the word was with God, and the word was with God, and John goes on to explain that there was a man that was a forerunner. His name was John. And he contrasts Jesus and John, and he says, Jesus is greater than John. Now, when we look at, at, the, at the, the second John, and the reason why secondary I also chose this passage of Scripture is because we are going through baptism today, and what an amazing occasion. What an amazing, amazing occasion that my brother and my sister are, are embarking on today. Uh, as we went through our lesson in the week, I just reminded them that when a, when a believer would believe in the, in the New Testament, they immediately would be baptized because what it represents is that we are identifying symbolically with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Because when we die and one day when we rise with Him, we will rise with Him in newness of life because we identify with His sufferings and we identify with His victory. And this is what you are, what you are embarking on today. So I trust that if you are not baptized and if you are seeking the Lord and if you are on the fence, choose God today. Choose Him today because there is no other way, nothing else satisfies. Amen. Now as we go into the study, this case study of who John the Baptist was. Now John was not a Baptist like you have Anglican and Catholic and, and Pentecostal. No, he's not a Baptist, a Southern Baptist, but this is more John the Baptizer. This is um, not his surname, but this is sort of his designation, John the Baptist. Now, oftentimes it's frustrating when you watch gospel movies or movies about the Bible. Whenever John the Baptist is portrayed in movies, he's always this wild-haired, yeah. eating locust, crazy man that's running around feral in the, in the, in the wilderness. And that is not the picture that scripture gives us. Yes, he did eat locusts and honey to sustain himself. But scripture, if you go and do a study of who John the Baptist was, it gives you a very different picture of who John the Baptist was, John the Baptizer. Now, firstly, I want us to look at a, at a piece of scripture, and you're welcome to turn there with me in, in, in Luke. Uh, so remember, scripture speaks to scripture. So even though we're preaching from the book of John, I want us to look at a parallel, and that's Luke 7. Uh, Luke 7, and this is just my intro to who John was. I want us to understand who this man is. 
so that we can understand in John chapter 3 what is it, what, what is it that, uh, that God wants us to see. So when we look at Luke 7, Luke 7, 18, we will read from verse 18. Let me just find that sentence. It reads as follows. Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. Now, just some context that um, John is in prison here. John was in prison. I'm sure we know the story very well and we'll cover it in detail. But it says that uh, disciples came and reported to him the, the, concerning these things. And John, calling the two disciples to him, sent them to Jesus saying, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? And if we go on, we'll read this account. So it's difficult to understand that when you look at John the Baptist, this is the one who was in the wilderness crying, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take the sin of the world away. At the end of his life, he's in a prison cell. And he says, send a message to Jesus and ask him, are you actually the Messiah? We see John struggling with doubts in this passage of Scripture. John is struggling. In, and if, if we understand who John is, if we know Matthew 11 verse 11 says this, Jesus is, is speaking of John the Baptist. And he says, among those born of women, there is not one risen greater than John the Baptist. Jesus, in essence, is saying here, that John the Baptist is the greatest man to ever lived. This is the confession that Jesus is giving, that out of everyone born from a woman, there's none who are greater than this man. He's saying he's elevating John to such a stature. This is the man that we're talking about here. John the Baptist wasn't just somebody who baptized Jesus and was living in the wilderness eating locusts. No, he was greater than that. He was the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. Understand that the New Testament started with the New Covenant, right? when uh, Jesus gave the cup to drink of his blood. That is the new agreement, the new covenant with God and man. So up until that point was Old Testament. John the Baptist was the last Old Testament prophet. And we understand that, uh, I, I mentioned this some weeks ago, but for 400 years from the book of Malachi, when Malachi closes up until Christ or John the Baptist comes on the scene, it's 400 years. And for 400 years, God had not spoken to anyone or through anyone. John the Baptist is the first prophet in 400 years and the greatest of all prophets, because his ministry was so great that he was to herald the king of kings. This is the moment of the entire Old Testament from the garden up until this point that God is working out his plan of salvation and now it's coming to fruition. This is the climax, this is the season finale and Christ is coming to the picture and John is to herald Christ into existence. This is the greatest ministry from the greatest man that has ever lived. And miraculously, uh, he was born to Zacharias and Elizabeth to herald the Messiah. The Messiah. Um, this is the great man that also baptized Jesus. You remember the story when Jesus was baptized, we saw the spirits of God descending on him like a dove, and God makes that, makes that admission to say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. This is the man that baptized him. He knew him all his life. You remember that John the Baptist was in the womb and he leaped for joy because he was filled with the spirits even from infancy. Even from, from an embryo, he's filled with the Spirit and he leaped for joy when he felt the presence of Jesus. This is John the Baptist who we talk about. And uh, we get to this point in Scripture where we see that John has some doubts. He said, send a message and ask him, are you the coming one? Otherwise, are you the Messiah? Up until this point, he had believed. And when you understand the context of John leading up to this point, and I'm doing sort of a Quentin Tarantino where you show the end of the movie, you go to the beginning, and then you go to the middle. And what we're doing is we're looking at the end of the life of John here. And even the greatest men, and what we need to take from this is even the greatest of us sometimes have doubts. Even the greatest of us experience difficulties with trusting in God, with believing in God. His promises are yes and amen, but we struggle. We struggle sometimes because things don't line up to what we are going through. And doubt is an issue for people who believe. 
it is not for unbelievers, it is for believers. John was a believer, he was faithful. But we need to understand that honest doubts is, is, is not a bad starting point. But we don't finish there. We understand doubts also, certain types of doubts is an issue of new believers, of foundational believers. We understand that God has given us a level of doubt. God doesn't expect us to believe blindly and just walk and say, you know what, God is true and let every man be a liar and just go blindly because that God did not create us that way. God has given us healthy skepticism to question, even men of God, even people are preaching from the pulpits, we are to question everything and we are not just to believe blindly. But healthy doubts is a healthy thing. Like we see in scripture where the Bereans, where uh, the apostle was preaching and the Bereans were, uh, were fastidious studiers and they went back to the Bible and they said, listen, we, we're going to see if what this man is saying is true. Yeah. They had healthy skepticism and healthy doubts. Healthy doubts is a good thing. We understand uh, there was another man, a very famous man in, in, in scripture, Thomas, the twin of the twelve, and he doubted. But he stuck with this title of, 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 of doubting Thomas, but the scripture doesn't call him doubting Thomas. It says, Thomas, don't be unbelieving, but be believing. So he's unbelieving Thomas. Belief and doubt is an issue of, of a believer. But Thomas makes an amazing, amazing confession of Christ when he had touched his hands and he says, my Lord and my God. That is understanding. He had the revelation of who Christ was and he says, my Lord and my God. That's, that's an amazing confession from this man who doubted and uh, this man who was unbelieving. So even the disciples, he said, ye of little faith. He spoke to them also. They had, they had doubts. So having doubt is not something that is, is foreign to us believers. But starting there is fine. But ending there is where it becomes problematic. So we see that John is in prison for close to a year. It's many, many months. Close to a year as we, we see the, the closest estimates. And he's close to the end of his life. And when you're facing the end of your life, you question, you question everything that you've done. And uh, what we see in John's, um, John's disposition in resolving his doubts is where did John go to? Didn't go to his wife, he didn't go to his disciples. John went to the Lord directly. Yeah. Send a message to the Lord. And when we struggle with doubts, family, we struggle with doubts in terms of God's promises because we take out a personal loan because we're not trusting in God for that finances. We go and date the first person that comes along because we fail to, to stick to the promises of God. Abraham went, to, went and make a child out of wedlock because did he trust God fully? And sometimes God has given us promises. This book is full of promises to you, to me, to your family, to your household. But do we trust him to the point of complete obedience or does our doubt overpower us? And when we have these doubts, where do we go? We go to our wives and say, babe, listen, I'm going to make a plan. And us men, we struggle with this because we want to make a plan for everything. Yeah. Rather than trusting in the Lord, and I'm guilty of it, I'm always making a plan. I'll sort something out, don't worry, don't buy that, I got this. But the problem is, do I go to the Lord first? And this is something my wife has humbled me and taught me. Is like, have you prayed about it? Have you seek the Lord? Yeah. And this is where I am guilty and where we are guilty. We trust the doctor's report and we don't go to the Lord. We're trusting in God for finances, we're trusting for a job, for a partner, whatever we're trusting in the Lord for. And where do we go? We go into Tinder. I'm guilty, I found my wife on Tinder, but we go, we go, to, we go outside of God's plan. I prayed about it, so. We, <laughs> but we trust in the Lord as far as we can throw Him. And do we trust God fully? And this is, this, this is just teaching us something here, that uh, when we look at... Uh, at, at John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist's father, his name was Zacharias, he was a priest of the Lord, of the Old Testament. And you can imagine now your father's a priest uh, for the pastor's kids out there, you, the, the word is drilled into you. This, this man would have drilled the, the, the Old Testament into his son. 
Um, he would have known the messianic prophecies, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prophecies of Christ. What are we looking for? We're looking for this man who will come and reestablish the, the throne of God. All of these prophecies you would have been familiar with because his father was a priest. His father would be reciting the Torah to him. He had expectations of who the Messiah was, firstly. So when we're understanding John's doubts, we need to understand that John had an incomplete view of the Messiah, firstly. Because even uh, up until today, the Jewish people believe that the Messiah is going to do certain things. And when it gets to Christ, there's no understanding of the fulfillment. So when, when John had understood this, and if you, you can go and read the account in Luke 1, I'm not going to read that, but Zacharias gives his inspired sermon of the Messiah. And he talks about what the Messiah will do. He talks about when the Son will come and he will establish a throne. And he talks about all of these different things. This was the understanding that John had of the Messiah. John didn't have the picture of Christ being dead, being buried, and being resurrected. He hadn't seen the risen Christ. He's only hearing about this man is preaching the gospel and he's, 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 he's healing the sick and he's raising the dead. He's doing these things. But he's not hearing about the establishments of the of the of the the new covenants he's not hearing about the establishments of the kingdom this was an expectation that the messiah would come and kick out the romans and he would establish the uh, the the days like it was with, with david and solomon israel being on top of the world this was their understanding he didn't understand that there will still be a two two thousand year period where christ will go and come back it's a second time he didn't have this revelation he had an incomplete view of who christ was so when he's hearing these things he has doubts and sometimes we look at our circumstances. You're in prison, you're jobless, your marriage is falling apart. You are struggling with things in this life, but you are faithful. Every week you're in church, you are praying every day, you are reading your Bible, you are doing all of the things required of you that God has given you. You look at the life of Job, Job is doing everything and his wife gets taken, his children get taken, his life, no, his wife didn't get taken. I saw a preacher saying, hey, you know, the devil's like, hey, why didn't you take my wife also? But, <laughs> <laughs> but God restored to him. But you look at the life of Job, that everything is taken from him and his life is in dire circumstances. Likewise, we sit in these situations where you're waiting for employment and nothing is happening. You're waiting for your life partner and nothing's happening. You're waiting to be blessed with the child. Nothing is happening. You're waiting for the finances to do the things that you need to do. Your children are starving. Your cupboards are empty. And you're like, Lord, but I'm faithful. What's the, what's the full story here? And we don't have a full picture. Do we trust God? Do we trust God in his fullness that he owns a cattle on a thousand hills, that he is faithful to the uttermost, that he would be with you even till the end of this age? Do we believe in these promises? John had an incomplete picture of who Christ was. So when he says, are you the Messiah? He didn't have the full picture like we have. We have the New Testament. There was no New Testament written yet for John. Not even Matthew was written yet. He didn't have First and Second Thessalonians who see that the Son of Man will come uh, triumphantly and, and restore the kingdom. He didn't have this view. So when you understand John's doubt, you must understand it from this perspective. But family, like John didn't have a full revelation. Abraham didn't even have a full revelation. The Torah wasn't even written yet. We have a full revelation of who Christ was and his promises, his promises for us and for your family that me and my house, we will serve the Lord. If your husband or your wife is unsaved, you're waiting for your mother to be saved, your father to be saved. You are waiting for somebody to change, your, ch your children to get off drugs. You're waiting for your brother and your sister to change their life around. Your promises are here. And we need to trust God because we have the full revelation. And this is the John that we are introduced to in Scripture. We are introduced to this John, the Baptist, who was faithful until the end. And we will see in John chapter 3. So 
we see that he had doubts. And family, I want to encourage us that as we experience doubts, trust in God fully. Trust in him fully because he is able. The one, as we read in the benediction, it says that he was able to keep you. He is able to keep you. God himself will keep you until the day that he comes or until the day that he takes you. So this is the God that we are serving. So I wanted to introduce you to Christ. He is all. He is everything. And I want to introduce you to a man who served him faithfully, who was a forerunner to this man. So we're looking at the part two of John, the, uh, the Gospel of John and in John chapter three. We're going to be reading a passage of scripture from verse 23. So John 3, 23 up until 36. And I hope to exposit or explain or just dive into this passage of scripture and, and mine some truth from this that we can learn as believers. So we've been looking at the structure of, of, of how this is structured. So this is an account of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is not yet locked up. He's not yet killed. He is preaching. He is baptizing. And uh, the, the first part of this, so from verse 23 down to verse 29, is the, the introduction and then 31 to 30 to 35 is the second part of this and this passage of scripture hinges on verse 30. John the Baptist says this, he must increase, Christ, he must increase but I must decrease and this is the hinge on the door. So the first part leading up is John the Baptist talking about himself decreasing. You have the hinge or sort of the, the, the bridge which says he must increase and I must decrease and then you have him expositing on Christ where he must, he must increase. And this passage of scripture is, is uh, it's, it's, I'm still reading this, I went to bed very late trying to, to understand this a bit more and if God had just blessed me with more time but uh, that's the, 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 the downside of, of being a preacher and being a student of the gospel is just there's too much in, in God's word to understand. So let us look at this. First, he must increase, but I must decrease. This is the first law for all of those who serve in ministry. All of us here are servants of God. Um, the New Testament calls it doulas. We are the doulas. We are servants to God. And all who serve, or all, all who serve in ministry must be, must be humble. This is our first call. Um, we all should uh, echo... Is it better? Okay. So... Um, you just turn it up for me, Chad. So this is the first law, or the first law as we serve in ministry is humility. He must be exalted and I must be diminished. First Peter 5 verse 6 says, Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand and he will lift you up in due time. And there's no greater model of this than Jesus Christ. In terms of humility, you will struggle to find anyone who exemplified Humility like Jesus Christ did. You can go read the entire gospel which is dedicated, the gospel of the ox which is dedicated to Christ the servant. I did not come to, to be served, but I came to serve. This is the mantra of, of uh, Jesus. Philippians 2 verse 6 says, Who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Talking about God himself, God incarnate, did not consider any advantage of the godliness, but humbled himself to the lowest form, which is humanity. Humbled himself so low that we may be exalted. He exchanges his humility to exalt us. So as we understand that as the church apostatizes, so 
as the church becomes more apostates, apostates is basically turning away from God. And we see that um, one of the prophecies of the end times is that the church will become apostate. The church is going to turn away from sound doctrine, going to turn away from God. And we see it happening now, where there's all forms of ministers trying to justify their sin and justify the wrong. And we saw in Jude that these men will come, but the church is prophesied the great apostasy it calls, right? Many people are turned away. Even Jesus says, will you not also go? 120 Disciples, the most of them turned and the twelve stayed with him. So many will turn away from the gospel. Sound doctrine and truth. So as we see, as the church turns away from God or becomes more ethical, we see that Christ is diminished and ministers are elevated. The men of God on the pulpit are elevated and Christ is diminished. There's less mention of, I went to a church once uh, many, many years ago and I saw many pictures of the pastor on the wall and I couldn't find one picture of Christ. Even I went to some church in Europe and these great cathedrals and not one picture of Christ. Apostle so-and-so, saint so-and-so just lined up on every single wall and this is the apostasy of, of modern day Christianity is that Christ is diminished and the ministers are elevated. And this is a sign of the time that we are living in. And we need to understand the people who elevate themselves in ministry are graceless. This is what scripture teaches us. John 4 verse 6 says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And the adverse says he will de- that those who are elevating themselves are graceless. Um, so the path of humility is a path that every faithful minister will choose to, to follow. I must be less than everyone. I must consider myself the lowest of everybody. This is my goal. And... Um, I think Pastor Bevan gave us an example of this where somebody uh, came to him and says, I didn't even realize you're the pastor. Like, you don't look like a pastor. And, he's, and he says, that's my prayer. like, I shouldn't be, you know, the pointy shoes and the leather, everything. And the, <laughs> and the pastor. <laughs> you know that you know that you know that this man is a pastor. But we should all be so humble that we treat everyone else, not because I can quote more scriptures or I go to church more. There's no credence in God's kingdom. The credence in God's kingdom is humility is if you can humble yourself, he will lift you up. God would reject the proud. Pride is the first sin that ever entered into this realm. Pride. Everything stems from pride. And it's good pride. Don't get me wrong. Pride makes you wake up, brush your teeth, brush your hair, dress nicely. You're proud in your appearance. But pride out of control. God resists the proud. And they call it illusions of grandeur. When you think you're greater than you are. You, you think you're that, oh, you know, you, you're the man, like, hey, no one can do it like me. No one can talk, walk, do these type of things like me. I am very well aware of every flaw that I have. I am nothing special. Nothing special is God using an earthen vessel. God will use a donkey even to preach his gospel. There's nothing special about me. And that is the, the message that we learn from this passage of scripture. So um, we, we covered who was John the Baptist. Jesus, uh, Jesus spoke about him, that he was the greatest man to have ever lived. He was the greatest of all prophets. Uh, he had the greatest responsibility uh, to, to prophesy and to herald the Messiah. Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. When he came, you saw him in the distance. He's like, there's he. He is the one. He is the one. I'm certain of this. Um, he was the greatest man. He was powerful. He was popular. You need to understand the popularity of John the Baptist at this time. The first prophets who ever have come since 400 years ago, they had the book of Malachi. This is great, 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 great grandparents were reading this. Last prophet had come Malachi, and now you have John the Baptist entering the scene. The popularity of this man must have been out of control. They had Justin Bieber in the mold. Somebody dressed like him, and people flocked to this man. You can imagine now how much more people are flocking to this man because he's calling people to repent. And, the, and the, the, just the powerful nature of this, because he's calling Jewish people who had the covenant of Abraham, we're the children of Abraham, the, the descendants of promise, this is like, this is their birthright, and he's calling them to, to repent. 
This is like, it's like unheard of. It's calling holy people to, to turn away from their wrongness. But this is the ministry and people flock to him because they realized they were far from God. His popularity was unparalleled, most popular in, in the land. He was powerful and influential. If he had to say something, things would move. That's why even Herod was afraid of him because of the people. But um, so we realize that from this man who was at the pinnacle of human history, we learned a great lesson of humility. He says, he must increase and I must decrease. And this should be our stance as servants of God, as people. Don't consider yourself greater than you are. So verse 22, let's read from verse 22. It says, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came to the land of Judea. There he remained with them and baptized. 23. Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem, because there was much water there, and uh, they came and were baptized. So we understand, if you look at the time period, for a period of, of a few months, you find the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of John overlapping. Both of them have a similar ministry. They're both preaching repentance and the coming kingdom of God and the coming Messiah. There's, there's, a, there's sort of a competing ministry um, like, uh, like we had once when we were at the Hole-in-One. Some people would come to our church, but they actually meant to go to the church down the road. They're like, hey, wrong venue, but you're ready now at the benediction. You're having tea with us, and now you must go to your church. <laughs> There's competing ministries, right, between the two of them. But we understand in God's kingdom, there's no competing ministries. But we see in terms of how they viewed this, the disciples viewed it in a certain way. Uh, so there was a few months that uh, before John is arrested. So John is shortly arrested after this account, right, after verse 36. John is arrested a bit later, but there was a period of time where both were, were, where John was, was uh, in this period in, uh, in Salem, uh, Salem and, uh, and Anon. And he had submitted the territory of Judea to Jesus. So Jesus was in Judea. And um, so there was a dispute between two ministries. Verse 25 says, Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. So basically there was a dispute between whose ministry was more important. Who's the, the main character here? Because John, is, John was here first, right? John already established. He had a following. This cult following. People are following him. Is This is the man of God that we should follow. And uh, that's why we have different baptisms. There's a baptism of John, there's a baptism of this one and that one. But, uh, you know, the New Testament says one baptism, one Lord, one faith. So they're arguing now, the disciples and the Jews, disciples of John and Jews. Uh, so this was a, dis a dispute between whose ministry was more important. Verse 26 says, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you and beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it is given to him from heaven. And just remember that also everything you have is given to you from heaven. Your talent in sports, your talent in music, your ability to sing, your ability to speak, all of these things are given to you from heaven. There's nothing in yourself. Yeah. You are not that good. You're not that great. There's nothing in you that is good. It is all given to you from above. And he's saying that yeah. nothing is given to you unless it is given from God. Nothing. Nothing. And... Uh, so you yourself bear witness that I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. I'm the forerunner. He who has the bride is uh, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, the, this joy of mine must be fulfilled. Then he says, the hinge: He must increase, but I must decrease. You see, uh, John is considering himself nothing in this equation. So these were loyal followers to John. You can understand their mentality, right? These are, they're following their, their pastor. 
They're like, this man saved my life. This man led me to God. He, he brought me into holiness. He ushered me in from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. This man I owe everything to. I owe him all because I was living in darkness. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And he showed me the way. This was the disciples, right? So this great preacher showed me the way. Um, and they are bothered by the competing ministry that they heard that Jesus was doing that Jesus was taking over their territory. They were in Judea first, but because of the water, there's much water in that area they were in. So they moved in, they, they gave up the territory to Jesus. So they're saying, Rabbi, pastor, this guy is taking our things. Like he is dominant, he's taking our stuff. Jesus is, is, is basically taking our ministry. This is our ministry. And you see this jealousy emanating from his disciples. You see it in their language. First he's like, that guy that you were there in, in this Judea with, this unnamed man, they don't even call him by name. You know when you're mad at somebody, like, you notice when you're having a fight with your wife, there's no, babe, please, it's, it's, it's first name basis, full name basis, Grenville Edward Green, can you please pass the thing, it's like, how, but babe, like what? And you find that when somebody's angry or there's some level of jealousy, there's no direct name to say, they knew who Jesus was. They saw the, the dove descending on him, they, uh, the spirits of God descending, there was this understanding that he was even said that the old Lamb of God, his disciples would have been there for this. But you see this jealousy emanating from them. Look at how they, how they phrase it. Um, they say, you know, um, Rabbi, um, he who was with you, that guy who was with you beyond the Jordan, and the one you testified about, behold, he's baptizing, and all are coming to him. You see an exaggeration. All, the whole country. And you find, like, my mother does it. There's all this extra, extra, is like, oh, yeah, you, you know, you have the whole night. So it's like, I came home at 11, like, the whole night. It wasn't the whole night, so it was 11 o'clock. But you find that there's, there's levels of exaggeration. There's levels of exaggeration and their jealousy that, they, that they're putting in this. And you see the mindsets of this. And John corrects his disciples and he says, um, he makes those statements, right? So they say, all are coming to him. Um, with, uh, they didn't use his name. And basically they were provoking him to defend his stature in his place. Defend your, your, your stature as a pastor, as a rabbi. Defend yourself because this guy's taking over. They're going to be talking about him more than they're talking about you. Now, if we look at Numbers 11, we find a similar account. There's a parallel in Numbers 11, and it accounts a similar uh, account where there was a guy named Eldad and Medad, and they were preaching or prophesying, you know, the translation uh, kind of yeah, uses both, but they were preaching and prophesying. This is under Moses, right? So Moses was the daughter, he was the main guy. Moses was the, the leader, and then you find Ed, Eldad and Medad prophesying, preaching. And then a young man, uh, so Numbers 11:27 says, a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, the son of Nun. As we know, Joshua obviously uh, preceded Moses. Uh, Joshua, the son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and saying, Moses, my Lord, stop them. They're prophesying, they're doing your job. But Moses replied, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on all of them. You find this, that even Joshua, and you find that sometimes the higher you go in life in terms of position, power, even in ministry, you will find that people will provoke you to jealousy, or sometimes you'll provoke yourself to jealousy because of, on the accounts of somebody else, because you've reached a pinnacle. You've reached a certain point in life, and you'll be provoked to jealousy because your church folk are leaving to go to another church, or some, something is happening uh, likewise. And what you realize here with Moses and which on the Baptist is that you can't, you can't make a humble man jealous. If you are humble, 
There's no jealousy. It is not my sheep, it is not my flock, it is not my church. It belongs to Jesus. It belongs to Jesus. There can be two people here and we have a church where two or three are gathered in my name. I am there in the midst. And this is the mindset. This is the mindset that we should have that humble yourself so low, so low that nobody can provoke you to jealousy, nobody can provoke you to anger because, okay, it's fine. God has taken away these things from me. He takes away and he gives. It is up to him. And humility is the first law of ministry, as we see. So Joshua tried to bait Moses into jealousy. John's disciple tried to bait him into jealousy. And we see this parallel, parallels. Uh, verse 27, John answered and he said, A man can have nothing unless it is given to him from heaven. So John, John understood that ministry is a grace. Ministry is a mercy. It's a gift from heaven and something that we don't deserve. I don't deserve to stand here. I'm, I'm not qualified, I'm not able, I, there's nothing in me that is good as the scripture says. There's no, 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 none who are good, no, not one. But ministry is a blessing, it is a gift, it is, it is a, a grace from God that God gives, even to those who don't deserve it. And he gives it to us sinners. So when you find yourself in ministry or even in the workplace or whatever it is, your job is a grace that is given to you from God. We don't rob our bosses, by, we don't rob God. We do a diligent job as if we're doing it unto the Lord. Everything that we have, your children are grace from God. We don't deserve those children. They are too precious, but God has given them to us as a grace, as a mercy. Everything that we have, everything, that five bob in your car, it belongs to God. Every single thing is given to us by God. As Clinton even just gave us now, we need to understand that everything that comes from above, everything that we have is given to us by God. So as high as you get in this life, never forget that. Never compromise your morals, never compromise your values as high as you get. Because I heard of a pastor who was um, very firm in the word of God and when asked about the issue of baptism, on the fence. This is what the Bible says, but make up your own mind. Not standing on truth and saying, this is what the Bible says and this is what I believe. Because you will get cancelled the higher you go in life. So I'd rather lose my ministry, I'd rather lose favor with man and speak the truth and get canceled by everybody. This should be our mindsets because when this church grows to 50,000 people and then you say one controversial thing, homosexuality is wrong, but make up your own mind. Like, uh, you know, you decide for yourself. No, the Bible says sin is sin. And we were talking about it yesterday at the men's prayer. We tiptoe around these, these topics, these hot topics, homosexuality, transsexuality, the, uh, you know, the sexuality of our children, all of these things. And then if I had to say, listen, some of my best friends are, are adulterers. You know, I don't judge you. Uh, you know, some of my, I was born this way, wanting to have more than one wife. And, you know, we don't justify adultery in the same way that we justify homosexuality. Why don't we stand on truth? So we stand on truth. So he says, uh, John gives us that illustration. John gives us an illustration in John 3 verse 29. He who has the pride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him. So essentially, John is saying that I'm the best man. We understood that uh, these marriages in Jewish customs would be about six months long, six months long of preparation that you would go and there was this whole procession that you would go and sneak up on your bride and you would steal her away and it's a picture of, of Christ coming down and stealing us away as his bride. Um, but John then says, uh, he, he then says in verse 31 to 36, he focuses then on the Christology and the preeminence of Christ. Uh, embedded in these verses is a full rich Christology. So he talks about dispelling himself. I'm nothing, I must decrease, right? Not much focus there. Then he goes into the Christology in, uh, in verse uh, 31 to 30, 35. And there's five lessons that I want us to really, um, I'll just speed both through this, but he says, number one, Christ has a heavenly origin. 
Right, uh, so the divine origin of Jesus is recorded in Matthew. The virgin will conceive a, um, conceive a son and they will call him Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, so verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Now if you look in John 6, verse 33, I'm going to run through these. He says, I'm the bread of, of God. Uh, for, for the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven. Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Verse 50, but here is the bread that comes down from heaven. Verse 51, I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. Verse 58, this is the bread that comes down from heaven. He is heavenly ordained. We covered that in extensive detail last week, but this is the first lesson that he's saying. And John is giving us the second lesson in verse uh, 32. What he knows, he knows from first-hand divine experience. He's omniscient. So in verse 32 he says, and what he has seen and heard, that he testifies that no one receives his testimony. God has knowledge of things uh, and has complete omnipotence. Um, John 5 verse 30 says it this way, I can of myself do nothing. I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that he, uh, that the witness which you witness of me is true. You have sent John, and he has borne witness of the truth. Yet I do not receive the testimony from man. I say these things uh, that you may be saved. In essence, we find that John gave a testimony of what he received from God. John received from God, from the Holy Spirit. But Jesus didn't receive the revelation. Jesus is the revelation. God, John is saying here, yeah, what he knows, he knows from first-hand account. Jesus was in the presence of God at the right hand of the Father, sitting in the, in the, in the, in the glow of God. And he, what he teaches us, he didn't get from anyone from second-hand accounts. John had second-hand revelation. Jesus has first-hand revelation. Amen. The third uh, lesson that we have um, is that he who has received his testimony certifies that God is true. God is truth personified. And if God is truth, then you must believe in Christ. We understand that God sends an angel, right? And says, his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. God affirmed his son at the baptism and said, this is my beloved son. This is a testimony from God. God spoke at the transfiguration on the mountain and he said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And um, so if you don't believe that Jesus is the son of God, then you're saying that God is light. Because God has testified in hundreds of ways in the Old Testament, pointing to the cross to say that this is my beloved son. Here he is, the one you've been waiting for. Jews are still waiting for him. So the Jewish people think that they affirm the God of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but their God is a liar because it is the God of the Old Testament who revealed every single prophecy and directed it to the fulfillment at Christ's first coming. It is the God of the Old Testament who prophesied about the seed of the woman in Genesis 3. It is the God of the Old Testament who prophesied that he will be wounded for our transgressions in Isaiah 53 and on and on and on. So every single prophecy in the Old Testament that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ points to either validate God as speaking the truth or God lying. So that's what he's saying. If you validate Christ, you validate God as, as telling the truth. If you don't, yeah. then you're saying that God is a liar. Yeah. Number four, he possesses the Holy Spirit in full presence. Verse 34. For the one whom God has sent speaks words of God, for God gives the spirits without measure. John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from birth from the womb. Um, his ministry was empowered by the Holy Spirit, but John had a measure of the Holy Spirit. John had a measure of the Holy Spirit, where we find the scripture here that John says that he has a spirit without measure. There's no limit to the amount of spirit that he has because he was eternally God. And uh, 
it is given according to his infinite nature and uh, the level of his deity. Um, number five, the fifth and final lesson, he has received all authority from the Father. John 3.35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. We covered this last week. All things belong to him. All things are made for him, by him, and through him. So John has a full understanding of God's plan to create and regenerate earth and fallen sinners. And basically, God has given everything to his son as a love gift. You say, everything I own, my son, is yours. I give you this bride. You prepare a bride for your son. We see that picture in the Old Testament where you would go and get a bride for your son and bring her and present, him, present her to him. Done the thing, same thing with Adam in, in the garden. And he made a woman and he presents it and he said, this is, this is your bride, this beautiful bride. And we know, if you can remember from your wedding day, just that feeling that you have, this is what he does to God. He gives him a bride. The bride is his church. It's you and it's me. Unspotted, unblemished. Virgin bride. Uh, so... Just looking very quickly there, that we see that God's eternal love relationship with his son results in him giving a love gift, all of creation to his son. John understands this and presents us with this full Christology. Full Christology, just in these few verses, he gives us his five points to say this is who Christ is. What I mentioned last week, he gives us in point form. Uh, so he who believes in the son has everlasting life. Now when you look at verse 36, he closes off. This is the closure of his sermon. And we see John as a preacher here. John closes off his sermon with this benediction or this, 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 uh, this invitation to the gospel. He says, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe or obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. He's a gospel preacher. Gospel preacher through and through. Why does he go from believing to obeying? He says, if you don't believe and if you, if you don't obey. He goes from believing to obey because believing is a command. You are commanded to believe. It's not an invitation. We say, come to the cross. Come. All of you are welcome, but it's a command. And if you disobey that command and refuse the Son and reject the Son, then what you are saying is that I accept the wrath of God to sit fully on me. Yeah. Do we understand the wrath of God? Um, you know, you can understand that if somebody has to do something to the one that you love, and if you get them in a corner, the things that you would do to them, you understand that feeling of wrath. Now you can imagine the immeasurable wrath that God has. Yeah. Immeasurable wrath. Says that the lake of fire that burns, that no, that's nothing gets quenched in there, that it's eternal darkness, that you, the darkness is even tangible. This is the wrath of God that you'll even be given a new body to endure this, that day and night the torment rises before God and the holy angels. You understand that this is the torment of God, and this is not even preached today because ah, it's a little bit harsh. So we stay away from what John doesn't. John says, if you do not believe in the Son, the wrath of, the God, of God rests upon you. So he goes from believing to obeying because believing is a commandment. It is a command, it's not even a suggestion. So he who believes in the Son uh, has already obeyed the command. He who does not believe in the Son has disobeyed the command and the wrath of God abides in him. So we present it with a choice here. Eternal life or eternal wrath. This is the gospel in its purest form. And this is what John closes his sermon with, closes his discourse. This is the discourse between him and disciples and he says, choose you this day who you will serve. You choose the Son because all things are given to Him. Verse 35, everything is given to Him. The Father said, everything I own belongs to you as a possession. That includes these people. Who comes back to judge us? Not God the Father, not the Holy Spirit. The Son of God comes with rider on the white horse. Swords coming out of His mouth to judge the unrighteous. So we see that John becomes a gospel preacher here. And these are the last words to fall from the lips of John the Baptist in Scripture. Very last words that are recorded from John. And he ends off with a gospel proclamation. Then we see that the voice crying out in the wilderness goes silent. There's a hush. So in closing, we see that not long after this, we read the account in Matthew 14, where Herod arrests John, what we started with. 
Herod arrests John because John publicly preached against Herod's immorality. Um, there was an illicit marriage. Herod basically wanted his brother's wife and seduced and married her. And this was, John spoke out against us. And he says, this is not right. You can't have this woman. She's not yours. So he literally seduced his brother's wife and married her. And John has been saying this to him that it's not lawful. Um, so he, wants to, he was afraid to put John to death because of fear of the crowd, the influence that he had, and also because of the people. Um, but um, when it came to John's, um, Herod's birthday, he found it was a perfect time or a perfect excuse to have a debaucherous orgy. He wanted to have an orgy and just uh, crazy things that they would be doing at this time. And this is like very days of our life stuff, marrying your, your, marrying your next of kins and having orgies and all of these crazy things. But the, the, so this, this girl came and danced seductively before Herod. Danced seductively, done a bit of a, uh, uh, a dance that pleased him so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever he asked. And remember, the, the scripture says, don't give her oath hastily. Don't give your word hastily because you'll be held to it. Even kings were held to an oath. If the king decreed Nebuchadnezzar, but king, you said that if these people don't worship you, they must be burnt. He's like, hey, now I have to follow through because your word is your bond, your oath. So uh, he gave an oath and said, whatever you want, because you dance so seductively, whatever you want will be given to you. Um, and then the mother whispered in her ear and said, ask for John's head, because John is so, the woman is so aggrieved and said, we want John's head on a platter. So that displeased him. He didn't really want to kill him, but he said, okay, because of my oath, I'm going to give you John's head on a platter. So they beheaded John in the prison and brought the platter on her head, uh, brought the head on a platter to the girl. So she brought it to her mother. His disciples came and took the body away. They buried it and reported it to Jesus. The shining star was out and the voice was silent. It's really sad to see such a horrible way, a horrible end to the greatest man who ever lived. But this is how it is for the preacher. John died a satisfied man. He said, my joy is complete. My joy is made full because I've seen the Christ and I was here to herald him into the world. Why was his joy made complete? Because he decreased and Christ increased. And John followers had nowhere else to turn. The same grumblers and mumblers, they had nowhere else to turn but to Christ and became followers and disciples of Christ. John was a faithful preacher of the gospel to the end and he's a model of the first law of ministry, which is humility. So my encouragement for you church this week is stay humble. God loves the humble, he rejects the proud. Do not consider yourself greater than you are. There's nothing great about you except for the gospel. Paul said it this way, that I boast in nothing else outside of the gospel. I will not boast and say my skills in FIFA are better than XYZ, or I can play the best, or I have the, I'm the best musician, whatever it is that you excel at. That is a gift from God. Boast in nothing but the cross. Because as we learned last week and we learned this week, it is Christ. All things were made for Him. All things were made by Him and through Him. There's only one thing that matters in this world. All things and judgment that will be burnt away like grass. You throw everything into the furnace and what comes out, unless it's pure cold, or unless it's worth something, it'll be burnt away. So that job you have even will be burnt away. That affection you have for your lighty is going to be burnt away. That talent that you have will be burnt away. That looks, your, your nice legs, all of those things are going to fade away. <laughs> everything will end. Everything will end. And ask the older people. You realize this as you get older. That the things that you valued fade away. So my encouragement is stay humble. Stay humble. Learn this lesson from John the Baptist. Is that he must increase. And I need to put myself in the back burner. So it is not me here. It's no longer I. And I gave the guys a scripture in closing. Galatians 2 verse 20. It's no longer I who live. But the life I live in this flesh. I live in faith. 
and the one who lived for me and died for me. That is our confession this morning. That is no longer I who live, but Christ in all. We speak Jesus over our life. So, amen. So I'm just going to ask Pastor Bivens to come close and just uh, give us any closing announcements. God bless you, family.